This is the Exercise Mechanic Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne Asnet. Hey, everybody. If you're fascinated or perhaps frustrated by pain and the rehabilitative process, you're going to love this conversation between Dr. Raymond San Augustine and I. Dr. Augustine is not only a chiropractor, but he's also a strength athlete and a self-professed movement nerd that has a lot to say about pain and the nuanced process of rehabilitation. Here's a little sample of what we got into today. We talked about pain, what is it, and are there any silver bullets that we can use to get people out of it? We also discussed predictive processing and its role in the pain experience, as well as this thing called diffuse noxious inhibitory control as a potential explanation for why non-specific treatments may be as effective as they are. We also discussed the biopsychosocial model and why it actually might be a good idea to leverage our clients' belief systems, regardless of whether we agree with them or not, and his stance on the chiropractic model, crack necks, cash checks, and a whole lot more. Ray brings a great energy to this conversation, what can easily be a frustrating topic loaded with conflicting data and literature, Ray brings a curious and playful demeanor to the nuances of the scientific method. It is clear that he is as passionate or more about this topic than I am, which, for those that know me, is pretty hard to beat. So if you work in the fitness industry and want to learn more about pain, this is a great place to be. So get your notepad and get you some popcorn because this episode is both playful and dense. Now, before we get started, I do want to shamelessly plug our upcoming internship for personal trainers. The Exercise Mechanic has created a 16-week deep dive for personal trainers who want to level up their skill set so that they can have the impact and income that they desire. When I was at the beginning of my career as a personal trainer, I often felt like I was letting my clients down. They would come to me with various concerns, and I just didn't have the tools or perspectives to help them. This internship was birthed from that frustration. It is the course I wish I had earlier in my career, and it is now available to you. If you're interested in learning more about the program, I invite you to head over to www.theexercisemechanic.com and click on internship to learn more. Heads up, we also have an upcoming webinar entitled Pain Science for Personal Trainers, which covers all things pain biology, communication, exercise selection, and program design. It is being held on June 22nd from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. EST, and all of the information can be found on our website and in the show notes. All right, enough from me. Here's Dr. Augustine. Dr. Ray San Augustine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. Dude, it's a pleasure. Um, today, we're going to be talking a lot about pain. Within the fitness industry, I think if we were to ask many trainers, even just define pain, like what is that? Like how, you know, can you even define that word? I think many of us, myself included, would likely struggle with that. And so my first task for you today is how do you define pain? Let's start there. Okay. So that one, I actually just answered this question the last time I did a podcast. It's so hard because uh, a lot of the research, they'll have like very small nuances of explanations, but the one that I like the most, um, it goes, it's a unsense, uh, sorry, an unpleasant sensory experience that um, is caused either by potential or actual tissue damage. And mm -hmm. the thing that I like most is um, it is the 
potential tissue damage. Cause I think that's where the most important nuance is where it starts to open up this conversation that sometimes you're not injured, but you have pain, but also, um, that it's also like a sensory experience where if you're not experiencing it, you, you could still have tissue damage without pain. And it, it kind of like broadens this idea of what it, it can be. Some people are uncomfortable with that because they want to fit things in the little boxes, but it's not quite that simple as I'm, I'm sure you understand, um, especially as you get to putting this into practice with clients or patients or whatever that may, may be. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, I can definitely relate to wishing. I, I wish it was simple, you know, like I I'm assuming you got into the industry because you wanted to like help people or maybe chiropractic was useful to, for you. I'm not sure. And we, I think that'd be a good thing to unpack later, but it would be so nice if I could just be like, Oh, right. You've got pain in your elbow in this specific location. So let's do this. And it's absolutely guaranteed that it's going to work because of this kind of causal relationship between pain and problem, you know, yeah. wouldn't that be nice? Oh, it'd be so easy to just have like a bunch of silver bullets loaded where you're like, yep, this is the thing. Yep. This is the thing. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> generally there are things that help. Um, mm -hmm. and like, I'm sure, you know, this exercise generally helps. There's a, like a, mostly on like a systemic level, not like a direct specific level that a lot of people like to think it is. Um, but, um, but generally there are things that kind of help, um, with the pain experience overall. And, um, as you dive into kind of the research and the reading and all of those things, like it starts to get cloudier and cloudier and you're just trying to wave through all of this information. You're like, okay, well now what is it? Like, what is pain? What is the thing that's going to help this person versus this person? This is this person. And then you realize, okay, it's multifactorial. You have to take in that person and then start there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how come it can happen? You, you mentioned earlier that pain is an unpleasant, correct me if I'm wrong. I think this is what you said. It's an unpleasant sensory experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Um, so what gives, how come we can hurt even though things might be orthopedically fine under the skin? Yeah. And that's a, that's a, that's the weird part is, and like, I, by no means am I an expert in this. Um, there is like a predictive processing that happens. Like sometimes either there was a past injury or um, there is something that they've been told is bad for them. So then they assume that it's going to be bad and their brain makes the conscious, maybe subconscious de decision that like, okay, this is, might be a bad area. Let's send pain here to at least slow that person down. Cause pain's a great motivator, right? Like it'll, mm -hmm. it'll run, freeze or fight. And what's nice about that is at least it gives people an opportunity to assess the situation, but depending on the person that might make them run far too quickly. And that's not what we're going for. For others that may make them stop and think they're like, Ooh, I just got to like move gingerly here for a while and see if, if this is actually a safe position. And then all of a sudden that pain has gone, but that's like, um, and I'm reading more into this recently too. Um, mm -hmm. There's sensitivity that happens that that can happen at a central level from the brain and the, the brain, uh, the spinal cord, or it's actually the peripheral level because again, those 
areas were already injured. So they're more sensitive to mechanical stimulus or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm hearing is that the brain, depending on what we're taught and also, you know, lived experience, past injury, et cetera, can kind of, um, increase the, or decrease the threshold at which alarms go off, so to speak, to alter behavior is, am I hearing that correctly? And so, yes, um, that's my current understanding right now. That's just based off of like a couple of papers yeah. I just read the other day. I can't even give you the author's name because I haven't like combed through them like entirely, but it was interesting because there's like a top-down effect where no susception can happen and they're just more sensitive to meeting that threshold of creating more information for the brain to make the decision that, oh, okay, maybe this is a painful area and we need to kind of alert the conscious brain of being like, okay, we need to slow down and figure things out here. Mm. Yeah. Wild. And so what, so you yourself, you're a doctor of chiropractic. Yep. As far as, yeah, still. <laughs> and, doctor, you still yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but I saw on some of your social platforms that you also do some manual therapy. Am I, yep. you know? Yeah. So how do you, uh, how do you view manual therapy and even exercise? How do you view all of those things working together so as to help people feel better? It's a spectrum for the most part, because there are individuals like for whatever the reason may be, either it's patient expectations or um, they just like getting hands on, on them. It has a pain relieving aspect. So we mm. utilize that to kind of um, at least give an opportunity to, to reintroduce movement. This is assuming that they're injured um, mm. or um, guiding them through. So like, I mean, as a trainer, you probably know, you could probably put your hands on someone's shoulder and then guide them through a position. And all of a sudden it's no longer painful just simply because of the analgesic effect of touch. It's just, there's a process there that happens. Um, and that's part of what we use it as well. Um, that also being said, if they just like to get soft tissue done, there's that like diffuse noxious inhibitory control thing where if you create a painful stimulus, there's an upregulation of, of uh, neurotransmitters to kind of um, alleviate that painful stimulus systemically. So then now what would normally oh, interesting. Be, yeah, what would normally be painful, it kind of like distracts the brain. It's like a pain gating theory as well. Um, right, distracts right. the brain and then they're like, oh, this is actually kind of safe. Like just because I'm experiencing discomfort doesn't mean I'm actually unsafe and all of a sudden they're able to move a little bit better or, or um, they're no longer afraid to go into those positions because it just feels a little bit better for whatever the case may be. You've given them confidence through an intervention, but it's not because we're changing tissue by putting my thumb into it. Although there are local effects that happen. Like, you know, that if you scratch, there's a little bit of redness that comes up. You can't, avoid, you can't ignore the fact that there might be local tissue changes, but it's not this macro change that we all thought we were doing, like breaking up scar tissue and, um, you know, just like nonsense like that. Like that's just not happening, but there's analgesia happening. There's human touch happening. There's a reassurance that 
some people are like, I'm not crazy. There's a painful spot in my back. You can reproduce it every time you touch it and you're validating their experience. And then all of a sudden they're not anxious about it. They're not, um, they're no longer uh, confused by it, that there's a reproductive fact that like, I don't have, I'm not having a heart attack right now because this guy touches my muscle and it's sore every time. And then that in itself is also decreasing sensitivity because there's no anxiety about it anymore. So that's a big part of uh, the manual therapy. And then uh, we also use, I guess like the, in research, the name would be muscle energy technique. Um, You're basically, I'm essentially the, the weights or the, um, the exercise machine. And I'm putting them into positions that would either be normally painful or um, close to the range of motions that they require and essentially challenging them into those ranges of motion so that they can get um, like a mechanical stimulus for either hypertrophy or joint loading or whatever the case may be, because we know that the human body needs load to change. Right. Okay. I've got a million questions and I, I think know, I, 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 <laughs> Dan, no, never apologize. I find uh, this subject is so incredibly fascinating, which is why I'm so happy that we're having this chat. Um, so you mentioned a few different things that I was really hoping on touching on. The first is I think within one sentence, you said a few words near each other that co- aren't commonly said near each other, at least in the training world. And I'd like to put my finger in that and, and elaborate on yeah. it more, which is adhesions and nonsense, breaking up adhesions and nonsense. I think that would be really important to touch on pun intended, because it's something that, you know, it, uh, we still hear that that's a thing. And, you know, I don't know about you. I have like anecdotal evidence in my life of someone rubbing their thumb over an area of my body and it goes clunk. So it feels like there's a bunched up section of tissue that is adhesed. And so Are you like, can we like get into this a little bit? It is. um, Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, But the thing is that like trigger points, adhesions, whatever, like whatever insert buzzword here. um, It's really simple to communicate. And I think that's where people want to fall to because sometimes you have all these words and they're just like, I don't, know how to explain this to a patient. So the best way to do it is to just call it an adhesion or a trigger point. Cause it's, you're taking this massive understanding of what could be happening and then putting it down to reduct, reducing it to two words or one word, and then okay. communicating it that to a person who doesn't have the background that we have in, in this uh, pretty big topic. So then that gets perpetuated because it's the telephone game. Then then mm. that person's like, oh, you know what? All you have to do is rub it out, uh, rub out this adhesion with this lacrosse ball because that's what my chiropractor told me to do or that's what my physiotherapist told me to do. Um, and that's where I think it gets perpetuated on social media because information just shoots out so quickly just depending on your reach. So um, I just, I think it's nonsense because this is the question that I asked someone is like, why do you think that the tool you're using is destroying tissue underneath, but not the skin on top. 
Oh, okay. That's an, yeah, that's an interesting question. Because like when a surgeon cuts someone open, they have to get through the epidermis, the dermis, the fascia, then the loose connective tissue, and then into that like deep connective tissue. So mm. why is it a ball can bypass that entire surface layer and then just break up tough tissue deeper to that? It doesn't really make sense once you start to think about it, but it is an easy way to explain this overlying topic of why something might help someone. Because it's harder right, and to be like, Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just harder to be like, oh yeah, when you rub it, the brain's actually releasing neuro, uh, neurotransmitters to kind of calm down pain. And you're actually not doing any change, but you're just dampening your pain. And some people are just like, so I'm not actually fixing anything. And like, well, you're not need. It's like, sometimes you don't need to be fixed. Like things don't need to be fixed. You just need to like, your, your experience just needs to be changed. And I, I think that's where we lost the rhetoric. Mm, yeah. It makes me think back to that course we were talking about before recording that I did with uh, Greg Lehman, uh, I think it was two or three years ago. And he, I don't know how many times I, <laughs> it would have been nice to count how many times he said symptom modify during, during that course. And that was one of those things that really stuck with me is it's like, well, we actually don't, we seemingly don't have a lot of actual proof about what are the mechanisms that are leading to people feeling better when we do things like, you know, if I'm doing a rotator cuff, you know, a shoulder external rotation, whatever loaded, uh, you know, uh, historically or in the past, people would often say, and even to this day that like, that helps with like the centration of the humeral head. And from what I've read within the last few years, that doesn't necessarily hold up to scrutiny, you know? Um, and yet it does sometimes really help people. And so I've just kind of stopped, uh, over the last little while worrying so much about what the exact mechanisms are per se mechanically mm -hmm. and just kind of resting in my my current best answer which is that it's symptom modifying them in a favorable manner period <laughs> you know so much and exactly why too. i don't know yeah but it's yeah. not as sexy though that's for yeah, sure yeah no absolutely and like joint centration that was like a huge thing in, in Cairo school too um yeah. but it's like the joint isn't meant to be perfectly center like it shifts and slides and like that's the point of it so what is center um it's just rel relative mm. to what you tolerate right like it's yeah it doesn't really make sense and you would think that someone yeah that was like and it gets really difficult because even teaching clinicians who were taught a certain way of thinking they're like, well, well, why wouldn't you just do rotator cuff exercises here? I was like, well, because they really don't do that much movement there. If like, for example, let's just use a bench, so uh, like a power lifter. If they're trying to get better at benching, it doesn't really matter how much torque they can produce at end range here. It's usually less so um, mm. because their muscles at its shortest position anyways, like they need to be here into their position that they need. So make it relative to the person <clears throat> unless they're like, it only hurts when I'm reaching in the cupboard. And then at that point they're like, okay, that's, that's totally separate from your sport. But, um, it's, it's just, it's so it's, re it's reductionist because, because it's easier to explain. Cause then you could just say, say something while you're sitting on a bench and then walk away. And then they're like, 
if they're happy with that answer, then you're like, sweet, I've done my job and wash my hands. And you get that little dose of dopamine there. You're like, that was the best education I could have ever done. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. In contrast to nowadays, you know, you're at the, you're at the bench. Someone asks you a question like, oh, I don't know, my shoulder, my shoulder's hurting. What's going on? You're like, well, let me tell you, yeah. you whip out <laughs> all of your studies, you know, your Rolodex of studies. Um, yeah. Yeah. Might be a little bit less um, uh, useful. For sure. Absolutely. They just, and that's the thing sometimes is you have to in patient teaching, um, mm. we try to make sure that every patient leaves with something, something that's applicable like that day so that they, especially symptom modifiers, that's the most important one that I think, um, whatever is able to modify their, their experience so that they can get doing or as close to doing the thing that's most meaningful for them, whether that's running, mm -hmm. lifting, yeah. uh, gardening, I don't, I don't give a shit. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. It has to look like that because you don't get better at something you don't do. Right. Yeah. And you, you mentioned buy-in earlier, like that if someone really buys into manual therapy or yeah. perhaps if we were to take into a different context, if they really buy into doing joint centration exercises or whatever that it, it seems like there might actually be value in leveraging like our clients' belief systems almost like a, as a being a way in what, what are your thoughts on that? I totally agree with that. Like I very rarely prescribe rolling, for example, like a uh, foam rolling, rolling on a ball or whatever, unless it's like, it's someone who doesn't generally exercise and they've never been on the ground and then come up whatever in like the last 10 years, just cause they, they don't do burpees or they don't do anything like that. So like, at least we're encouraging positions or patterns that they would normally not do that are probably beneficial for them. Um, but if it's someone who's just like a regular gym goer or anything like that, there's usually bigger fish to fry. Like it's like, you could probably spend more time doing something else um, than like 40 minutes on a formal or just to get your bench press or like just to get a pull up. Like that's just, that's nonsense. It's too much. You shouldn't be spending that much time rolling unless it's just there. Cause you're talking with your community. Cause that's important. I think that's that social component of sport and training is has a pain dampening effect as well. And I think that's usually what people get more out of it is they're like talking to their friends and they're like rolling around. And I'm like, I can't, you can't take that away from them being like, that's nonsense. Don't do that. It's stupid. You know, that's dumb. Now you're taking that other beneficial part of it. That's like a biosocial psychosocial part. Right. So, right. right. Um, but like telling them, you're like, you don't need to do that for so long. They're like, yeah, but I like to, and I'm like, sweet. Okay, cool. But make sure you do okay. this it's just as important. That's where right. I would meet them where they're at. But I'd tell them like, you're not changing tissue. You're just like, you're just making it so that it feels a little bit better in the short term. And yeah. Then, yeah. I'm okay with that. So for you mentioned the biopsychosocial model. So for those for the uninitiated, uh, could you kind of paint like a Coles notes picture of <laughs> what that is? And so for those that uh, are listening to this, Dr. Ray's eyes just got really big when I when I pitched <laughs> that that question. So uh, buckle up, get your popcorn. I usually just show a picture because it's just so much easier. Um, <laughs> Sorry, dude. The biopsychosocial model, I would like to think, is a encompassing 
approach to patient care or client care, whatever the case may be, um, where you take facets using an assessment because you can't you can't take information and, and apply an in, like a intervention without getting some sort of assessment of it, um, of the biological, which is uh, anatomy, your physiology, um, and um, I guess that's it. Anatomy, physiology, nutrition, chemistry, things like that that's happening um, that you can explain purely biologically. Um, psycho, obviously, the their emotions, their fears about certain things, their preconceptions of what uh, is good and bad or uh, what they've told is that. And then the social component, which is um, psychosocial is kind of like mixed together. It's like, what are their support networks? Um, how do they cope with their mechanisms for whatever the case may, may be, whether they feel like shit is exercise their, their outlet or um, there's a lot of things like you can go as deep as like um, like bodybuilding culture and bigorexia where like that psychosocial component of of those things where there's um, the encouragement of of exogenous drugs that goes into the bio but like it you're always taking in all of these pieces through history or just like conversation and then you're mm-hmm. applying it to the understanding of this individual's experience in it in it in its entirety. So, um, and then see where all of those things kind of interact with each other. Um, and then it's hard and it takes practice and it takes being able, you, you only get good answers by asking good questions. And what would be an example of a good question? A good question. Oh, other than that, other than that question, I just dropped on you. (laughs) <laughs> well, like, so, um, for some reason I have a handful of people who ride horses and interesting. yeah. And it's like, not my sport. They've taken me riding once and uh, I got as much as I could get out of it from one session, but more often than not, I just ask them, what movement do you need for your sport? Like, what do you need to do on the horse? in order to get the horse to do what you want it to do. And then they'll show me. And then I will, in my brain, I translate that to uh, horizontal adduction, external rotation or internal rotation of the hip in this position. <clears throat> but there's, there is a lexicon that I have and a lexicon that they have, and I need to see it for me to understand what that case may be. And then either create an exercise around that or give them an opportunity to learn it and then meet them where they're at. So I think a good question incorporates and validates the person's experience of that. Um, so you can either ask a better question or you get the answer that you want. I love that so much. Uh, and it, uh, thank you for also uh, accidentally validating something that I do with my people, which uh, there was one time I asked a question by accident to be honest, from a place of frustration, uh, because I was trying to pain science them. This is a client like a while ago, I was new on this, this track. It was like a year and a half ago. And I was like, all right, everybody that I work with needs to understand pain biology. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But I don't know if you made that mistake, but, uh, I definitely went way too far in that direction. And there was one time, dude, I was, I was frustrated 
uh, I was frustrated with this client and I asked them from a place of frustration, like, well, what do you think the problem is? And it was incredibly enlightening just asking them, what do you think is the source of your pain? Yeah. Uh, shed a lot of light in that moment on belief systems. And then I also, I forget exactly what it was, but whatever they told me, we then went in that direction and it then gave us, like we were kind of talking about earlier, a way in. Um, and so I love that question that you, you know, that you ask your patients, which is like, what movement do you need for your sport or, you know, what skill or something do you need for your sport? Because it gives you, you know, not just the position specific stuff, but perhaps other things as well. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And like, uh, I think that's an, I went down the same route too, because half the time you make this awesome explanation and then they're like, yeah. so it's in my brain. And you're like, Oh God, no, that's no. not what I was saying. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. That's, I know that's what it sounds like, but that's not what's actually going on. And then they like, and like, it can go one way or the other. Um, so you have to like kind of meet them where they're at in terms of their understanding too. For example, I'm a chiropractor and more often than not, a lot of patients, especially new ones, are just like, ah, oh, something's just out of place. Can you just like whip them back in? And I was just like, well, you know, once once upon a time, I'd be like, that's research shows that there's bones don't actually go out of place like we once thought, and like go through all this point, and like, and you'd spend all of this education on that, trying to break their belief, but you don't want to do that either, right? Like you don't want to create more confusion because that will just sensitize them even more mm. you it's a it's a relationship that you have to build where you slowly change these these patient beliefs like we were, you were saying these belief systems of why they have pain um and then maybe like i'll adjust them right like and then they'll be like oh that was good did you get it back into place and i'll usually just try to slowly change their 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 rhetoric because then they'll change their understanding just by talking about it more oh yeah we just moved the joint a little bit that way um it just opens up the joints capital gives it a little bit more stimulus so the brain kind of knows what's going on a little bit more there um and then mm -hmm. calms all the muscles down and then they're like oh cool okay but it's like you've now given them another explanation um that it wasn't out of place and I just put it back in. But like, and then you did, that just takes repetition. I have patients now, they're like, it feels like a rib is out. I know that's not what happens, but it's the only way I can explain it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That's and great. I, like, I find that. Perfect. I'm okay with that. <laughs> that's such a beautiful recon reconciliation between subjective experience and data. You yeah. Know, like, like data shows that that doesn't really seem to be a thing, but also that's really what it feels like. That's, yeah. And that's the only thing because it's an irritated joint yeah. capsule. Like that's what it feels like. Right. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so question for you, um, uh, when it comes, cause I've heard this many times, uh, especially Adam Meekin. So I think you've probably heard of him as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, who is just like, that stuff doesn't happen. And he's like, you know, he gets kind of, uh, fired up about it, but, um, it's it's interesting because I do I personally have some uh, some clients who are hypermobile. Um, uh, I have a few clients who have Ehlers Danlos. One client with Stickler's, excuse me, Stickler syndrome, and so you know those those are connective tissue amongst other things, connective tissue disorders. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's especially I find with those with those people there's 
A, there's a lot of fear around movement and there's a whole lot of um, uh, identification is the word that's coming to mind. Identification with that, that is a, a very real thing that happens to them. And, and so I, myself, I kind of been, I felt a few times like, I'm like, all right, I feel like this narrative that you hold about yourself isn't helpful, mm. but it is so firmly held. And also because of their, their very real genetic predisposition, I'm not actually certain that it might not happen within those populations. Cause I just don't know if we have data specific to people yeah. with Ehlers downloads and stuff like that. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, that's, what's pretty tough is people love boxes. They like labels. They like to be like, I'm this. And like, I need to make sure whatever this is, I fall within that. And that's like psychosocial component, right? Like they mm. put themselves in a position that they can make sense of it. Um, especially when it's like, why am I different than ever someone else? Now they have a word for it. And then now they need, they, that's part of them. And you know, that's fair, yeah. whatever. Um, and then um, that's, it, it's tough because you don't want to be like, well, what are you going to do about it? Let's just do this, right? <laughs> you can't invalidate their experience and their anxieties. So then yeah. you're like, yeah, I realize that you have a connective tissue disorder or whatever, like you do have a little bit more laxity, but what's nice about it is um, you have a range of motion that's inaccessible to most people. Why don't we try to make sure that that's as strong as possible? That's a nice reframe. You know, I like that. Reframed it. You've pivoted their thought process about it. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, there's uh, Ehlers-Danlos because it is a connective tissue disorder. It also affects some of the passive structures within muscles too. So like things are harder for them in general because they just mm -hmm. don't have the the structural integrity that the rest of us do. So their force output's gonna be much more difficult. Their right. uh, their muscles are gonna be fighting each other because they're just like, they're like, wait, we actually gotta try to stabilize this joint. So then yeah. you'll slow things down. But that just yeah. means your training has to look different. Like you're probably not gonna be doing a lot of explosive shit because that will probably synthesize them a little bit more. Or right. your volume of that would be much lower. But that's yeah. just a modifier for what they can tolerate because you don't know what you they can tolerate, right? Yeah. Like some of the issues is I think they're told, like someone is told, I have this, so I can't tolerate this anymore. I'm like, well, yeah. we could probably build that up. Like, let's see what you can actually tolerate, not not see what the textbook says. Like that's that whole bio portion, right? Like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. But I think who's that? Uh, what's his name? Michael Phelps, I think he has a connective tissue. He has like Marfans or something, doesn't he? Didn't know that. No, I wasn't aware. I, I think, don't don't quote me on that one, but I'm pretty sure that's oh, what like. kind of gave him like a, an edge. And this was one of these mm. conversations, like he has a competitive edge on certain aspects. But at the same time, I'm like, that also makes swimming more dangerous for him though. Because right. <laughs> of the connective tissue, he's like at higher risk for like pneumothorax or whatever. I think it's Marfans. Um, but yeah, so then you're like, okay, well, if an Olympian can do it, like, why can't you? Or like, I have scoliosis. I shouldn't be do doing back squats. Like, for example, like, I'm like, yeah. well, I, like, I know a girl who has like a, a wicked scoliosis and she's plenty strong. She's wicked strong. 
Um, so like if there's these self-limiting ideas, but you have to show them otherwise, but it's only done through practice. I don't think you can convince them yeah. to do that way. I love that. Yeah. And I like, I'm, I'm currently working with someone who has a connective tissue disorder and, uh, I don't know how many times, you know, like, uh, a very much a victim, I would say in, in some ways of, um, you know, Googling things and, you know, you, you Google a symptom and then you're afraid to leave your house because it just instills fear in your, in you. But what might be even worse than that is Reddit. Um, and you know, like Reddit communities that are just like never deadlift ever, you know, don't exercise ever. And the, what was such an amazing moment for this, for this person is getting them to, uh, you know, deadlift. I forget how much we worked up to, but I think we worked up to like 180 or something. And like they've, they, yeah, uh, in pounds and I just haven't, hasn't like, never had really like a significant athletic background because of all of these diagnoses and, um, all of the fear that was instilled in them from such a young age. And it was just so cool. Even like first time that we trained, it was like empty bar doing like Romanian deadlifts or something and very cautiously going into it, expecting things to break perhaps. And then realizing like, Whoa, I'm actually I can actually do this. And that kind of like violates their expectations. Yeah. Violation a little bit, yeah. you know, and then you can, it's, it's fertile ground. Yeah. At least that, that would be, that would be my words, but. Yeah. And you can like dissolve a, um, a false narrative, like, which yeah. is not, it's like, yeah. it's so reassuring. It's so empowering. And then they're like, all of a sudden this whole new world for them is opened up because they've all of a sudden been like, Hey, actually I can squat. You're right. Mm. Why can't I do that? Actually, mm. I had a picture the other day. They're like, I thought I'm not allowed letting my knees go past my toes in a squat. Yeah. I was like, you ski that happens. Like that's going to happen. Regardless. <laughs> you walk right. up the hill, like there's, that's going to happen whether you want it or not. Like you may as well prep yourself for it. She goes, you're right. How come no one's ever told me that? Before? I was like, I don't know. Who have you seen? Someone from the nineties? Like, like yeah. you go back in time and then see a doctor back then. Like that's insane. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. We're still, we're still facing and dealing with this stuff and doing damage control about some of these just really outdated narratives. It's exhausting. Some, I think that's the hardest part of our job is uh, I would rather have someone who has no idea and I could start mm -hmm. from fresh than mm -hmm. someone who's seen X, Y, and Z and have been told three different false narratives and they're trying to piece together the ones that make the most sense to them. Mm -hmm. And then it feels like it's my job to totally disassemble all of that and then right. go from there. But I've learned over time that that, is, um, that leaves people feeling hopeless. Like you have to like slowly chip away at it yeah. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely tough. I find like, and you know, we were kind of talking about earlier how there isn't this like one silver, it would be so nice if there was just these silver bullets of like, Oh, knee pain. Here you go. Do this one thing or this one protocol and it'll always work. And you mentioned the word art earlier, which I'll be very honest. I haven't heard. I think you said the word art when you were talking about kind of like taking an artful approach with people that it's kind of like that it's nonlinear. Yeah. I think you yeah. used that word. Yeah. Um, 
And to be honest, I haven't heard many people use it. And but to be like, but for years, that was has been the word that I've used to describe um, the training industry that I'm a part of. You know, I'm not a clinician, but within the context of working as a trainer, there's like equal part science of like looking at data, uh, looking at program design, learning as best you can, but then also where the rubber meets the road is this really kind of artful nuanced, it depends type of application that can't be predicted, uh, uh, with absolute certainty, whether or not things are going to work. And, and it's, I, I find, I think to your point, like equal parts, frustrating and also, um, exhilarating because of how challenging it is. You know, it means that every single day, uh, you have no idea what you're going to be walking into. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. Um, and like artistry, of that, I, you know, I think I got that from Cairo school. Cause like Cairo, like, I'm sure you know this Cairo's there's like, there's very different types of Cairo's. And I think that's what makes it very difficult for, um, patient bases. Cause there is someone like me who, um, most people are like, yeah, but you're not a Cairo, you're a physio. And I was like, nope, my designation that I pay for every year is chiropractor. In fact, I would love to pay a physio's uh, designation because they pay much less than we do. <laughs> so that would be awesome if I could do that. But I didn't go to school for that. So that's not the case. So. <laughs> um, it just allows me to practice. That's all that matters. Um, and that's where it, like, um, but that being said, in Cairo, they used to say it is the art and science of mm. the application of philosophy and um what is they said it so beautifully i'd have to remember i can't even remember it. it's been so long um but yeah it was the art and science the combining of of both and the application of it um that really kind of shows where you are and understanding the principles because you have to learn the basics and then the application of that basics is kind of where you go from there right so yeah so question for you i mean as someone who did his studies um you know, classically as a, as a chiropractor, but who now does, who seemingly has moved away from the, what is it? What's the expression uh, the cracky backy model and cracky, yeah. yeah and takes more of a holistic uh, approach seemingly like what, what led to that journey for you? I am lucky. Our school was not the word that we call it is vitalists and the New York, what do they call the new one now? Actually there's vitalists who just believe in like the rack and crack, crack necks, cash checks kind of thing. That model, like align. I've never heard say that, say that one more time, but like say it one more time, crack necks, <laughs> cash checks. Yeah. <laughs> I, that is the most gangster thing I've ever heard <laughs> out of a chiropractor's mouth ever. That is amazing. Well, they make so much money. It's insane because they can see so many people just jam pack them in one day. They paid off their yeah. school way quicker than I ever will. Um, but um, there are schools that teach that, that it's like uh, you are creating an alignment and then that allows the nervous system to do its flow. Like it's very... Um, mm vitalist it's like from i don't know how else to explain it it's like this weird expectation that like just not backed by science and then there are people who went to a school like mine and they we learned extremity work we learned like obviously joint manipulation and stuff like that um and the application of all these things and so i was introduced to it early 
Um, I was also in a like a group um, called the Motion Palpation Institute. It is a non, I think it's a nonprofit organization for the education of chiropractors. Um, okay. And they, they teach like, I don't know if you know what DNS is, during, uh, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. Kind of comes out of Prague. It's like yeah, a kind of sort of. Oh, it must be good then if it comes out of Prague. <laughs> exactly. Um, so like uh, my teacher, my mentors were taught in that a lot. Um, and then a lot of them were using like FMS, like the functional movement screens. So I was introduced to all of these facets and like given all of these tools. And then um, in my last year, I started to dive into like the pain experience and pain science a little bit more. And, um, and I was like, okay, it's not this, like this tool for this thing and this tool for this thing. It's not like that. It's not that simple. And then it just kind of like blossomed into this, but I also have like a background in nursing yoga. Oh, cool. So yeah, it's, I can't say it's one thing. It's I've been introduced to a lot of things over my lifetime that have helped me ask questions a little bit more, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I think like you said earlier, like, um, like in in a way, like the, the, the answers that you reap are, you know, at least largely dependent on the questions that you ask, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, um, I could see how the vastness of your background, not only with how your chiropractic school is different, but also your background in nursing, your background in athletics has led to you asking different questions than people that perhaps didn't have the same background and that uh, were taught to ask very specific questions and follow a very specific protocol in traditional kind of chiropractic form. Yeah. To be fair, our intake forms are like when we do a new exam, um, they fit pretty typical because I still need to document something on paper because that's a part of my designation and my, my professional responsibility. But also there are other professionals that I will eventually have to work with. And I still have to use that model to at least communicate with them for something. So mm. say there is a surgical candidate. Um, like I don't trust that this like surgeon knows what a snatch is. And I, when I, when they, my patient feels pain in the turnover of the snatch, like they're going to be like, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, that means a Hawkins Kennedy test. You know what I mean? Like we have this classic model that fits. Um, I just need to know that I have the words for it for someone else to understand it as well. Right. Right. And so you mentioned, you mentioned uh, a snatch you yourself uh, from what I've gathered from my online creeping. Yeah. Uh, you do your fair share of Olympic weightlifting. Yep. I, I wasn't able to catch whether or not you also did powerlifting or not. <laughs> um, so that's funny. Um, I'm just doing like this barbecue super total in May. Um, and I don't want to hurt myself. So I've been doing a little bit more powerlifting as accessory. Okay, cool. <laughs> just introducing it. I like, I started this a month ago because like, I love deadlifting. Like it's my favorite lift. Um, mm. but last time I did this just cause I wanted to do, I hurt my back and I was like, okay, I need to introduce this earlier on so that when I do max out, I don't get throttled and I can't work for a week. So right. I mostly weightlift. Um, I've been powerlifting recently just to make sure I don't get injured. I just need to make sure my, the tissue structures aren't sensitive 
afterwards because I mean, new stimulus, you can only expect to be a little bit more sensitive. Right. So, so curious. So you mentioned you're, you're teeing me off a lot today. This is like, you're like the perfect guest. I love this. So you, you mentioned that you hurt your back and it's interesting because, you know, like we mentioned, I'm in uh, Switzerland right now. Uh, A few weeks ago, my girlfriend and I went on a trip to Spain and I woke up in the morning and to be clear, I was not training in like the days leading up to the trip. Like it was like doing more work and getting shit done so that I could unplug with, you know, peace, woke up the morning for the flight in agony. I've had three moments in my life that my back was like in excruciating agony. One of them is a mystery. Uh, the second, uh, was due to me just beating myself up with a lacrosse ball in a band in good old Kelly Sturette fashion, uh, which we can maybe unpack later. But, but this time before the trip, I, dude, I woke up and I was just like, I know I didn't quote unquote hurt myself. Like I know I'm fine, but I'm in agony and like, I can't put my underwear on right now. (laughs) So, so as someone who throttled his back, I think was the way that you put it. And someone who understands pain, what's that experience like for you? like the reconciling of like, this sucks. Yeah. While also concurrently having a better idea than perhaps the norm, the complexities of the pain experience, like what goes through your head? That wasn't, it was in Hawaii. Actually. It's just like, I feel like people get injured when there's a transition from like high stress environment to a different environment. What doesn't matter Mm. what it is, whether it's low stress. I, for some reason, I, I think, there's a sensitivity that happens from that just because it's, it's unusual. It's novel. It's different. Or it's like, it's a new environment. You don't sleep as much or you're getting ready or whatever the case may be. But when I did this, uh, I was in Hawaii and I like was maxing out my deadlift and I was, I was just being dumb. Like I was just like taking massive jumps because it felt so good. Cause you don't have to warm up there when you come from Canada and go, to uh to a very tropical and hot area um and then i just tweaked my back and i was like great this is perfect like right in the middle of the trip um and in the u.s they don't sell muscle relaxants over the counter like they do in canada normally like history i would just be like i'm just gonna take just so i can go throughout my day and walk and like do that the nice thing though was that if i walked i felt great so i was like nope we're walking there nope we're walking there i just did whatever i could And then whenever, and then I would just swim more often because then it would just, at least I could add more movement, but the seawater allowed less load. So I can start introducing all these strange ranges of motion and reintroduce it. Yeah. So then I was just like, oh, let's just like graded exposure. Like let's add flexion extension in the water because now there's less load. And then slowly walking flexion extension, made sure I carried my water bottle that I would swing it, that I'd add a little bit more rotation, just like things that I would just like do. I don't know. Um, but there was one day, like kind of on the peak of it, and I knew I didn't, I'm like, we're gonna have a big day. Um, there's a route in Hawaii, like you could buy kava kava. It's a natural muscle relaxant. So I was like, let's go to the health bar. There's, they sell kava kava there. So I just grabbed some of that. I just like, I did what I can. Cause like, I'm not gonna ruin a trip just because I was being um, overzealous with my deadlift. Like that's just not, that, 
why would I do that? And it was too joyful of an area. If that was in Calgary, I bet you it would have been much worse. Because then I would have been like, oh, because I got work. I'm already missing work now. And then like, you know what I mean? It would have made that painful experience much worse because there would be more anxiety around it. But at least like now I'm like, at least I'm just chilling. Let's eat as much as I can. I'm going to sleep a little bit more and do whatever I can take the day. But I could see why it is alarming for people when they have to go to work the next day for mm-hmm. yourself. You must, it might've been worse because you're like, I'm about to go on a trip. So then the pain got worse because you're like, it's more ang- like you're more anxious. You're like, I'm just I'm so mad. Yeah. You know what I mean? like, so mad. And also I was just like, I was like, come on body. Like, really? Like you can do yeah. all of these amazing things. And now I, I wake and now you're going to throw your back out when you sleep. Like for yeah. real, like how dumb is this? Uh, I was just about to but, reward you with rest. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. I'm gonna punish you with red wine, sangria, and tapas. Yeah. It wasn't punishment. Um, but but it, yeah, it it was interesting because, um, you know, like the the first time that I had a really bad back attack, I it was interesting. You mentioned the um, uh, pain seemingly happening in those like trans transitionary moments of like really high stress. And then it kind of, it comes down and the body's really sensitized and it seems like things happen there. Uh, and it's interesting. I would totally agree with that observation. And like I was saying, the first time that I really threw up my back in air quotes was after the first weekend that I'd ever taught a course, Mm -hmm. I was, I was teaching, I was standing where my previous mentors had stood and I was teaching now. And it was one of the best peak experiences of my life. It was amazing. And then driving home from Toronto, I was like, I can't, I can't hit the clutch with my left foot without like tears coming out of my eyes. Like this is excruciating. And like, I don't think teaching like obliterated my SI joint. Like, I don't think that's what, yeah. I don't think that's what happened. And so in the, at that time, I didn't have the language that I, that I, that I do now to kind of frame that experience. Um, and that was one of the things that was different with this trip to Spain is it was like, this sucks. This is like, uh, I don't know, like a very real seven and a half to eight out of 10 for me. And, um, so there was that, but then there was also the, like, but I know I'm okay. Yeah. And so it was just kind of like work within the amount of discomfort you can tolerate and, uh, just try to enjoy your, your trip without worrying about it too much, you know, without like spiraling. Yeah. And uh, do you, do you follow Hannah moves? I forgot his first. Yeah. He's like, a yeah, yeah. I think it's Nick. I think he's, he's insane. I love him. Yeah. That's it. He just posted a wicked infographic and he talked about back pain and a thumb sprain. He made like, he drew parallels to it and it was awesome. Like I, I won't do it justice, but he talked about, briefly about our rhetoric about back pain is much different than a thumb sprain, but the injury could be the exact same, but because of our like beliefs and thoughts and how we talk about back pain is much different than a thumb sprain. We treat it differently. And then we, and it just like, it can, it could spiral, but if you just treated mm-hmm. it like we did in on our trip, we're like, ah, oh, this sucks. I'm just going to modify maybe eat a little bit more, maybe rest a little bit more. Maybe I do whatever I can still sucks, 
but you're not, you're not like anxious about it. You're not freaking out. You're not seeing seven different practitioners. They're all telling you different things. One of them wants an x-ray. The other one wants an MRI. The other one's thinking about a consult to a surgeon. The other one's like, no, don't worry. You could just exercise out of it and just do these McKenzie extensions. And then the other one's like, don't do extensions. You're going to destroy the joint. You should do flexion. And then you're then the patient's just like, what the hell do I do? I'm a bandaid. Yeah. And then they're just like, it's just, it's done. Um, yeah, but yeah, that yeah. started with this idea of how we talk about back pain and compared mm-hmm. it to just like a normal, like if we just talked about it as a sprain, as if it's any other body part, it's different. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just scarier because you have to stand every day. You have to sit every day. You don't really have to use your thumb all the time. I, I mean, ideally you would, but you have two hands. You only have one back. So it does. Right. And the thing is you could see your hand and you could see that it's safe and convince your brain that it's safe. You can't see your back. Really good point. Right, right, yeah. Like, when's the last time you looked at your own back? Not through a mirror, because a mirror will change the perception of your back as well. Right. Never. So the somatosensory perception of in our brain, our map of what our back is, is sheerly dependent on its experience, and if, hopefully, you're getting touched back there. Mm -hmm. To create, like, a understanding of what's going on in their back through touch and where their body is in space. And that's why exercise is useful and stuff like that. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And so what's your, you know, we're talking about movement here. We're talking about like, um, somatosensory aspects. What's your, what's your take on the, like the notion of perfect form, um, and, you know, individuals who are like, for, for instance, let's, we'll use two examples of like spinal flexion, uh, uh, and also, you know, like dynamic knee valgus, for instance, those are like, I would say the two, the two that come up all the time. (laughs) And so there's two, I would say major camps. There's one camp that is very much like, yes, you know, like these positions of like your knee going in the direction of your second or third toe and your spine being in neutral are better and safer. And then there's another camp that seemingly is like, well, that doesn't seem like that's necessarily true. And that camp sometimes I find will, will, will promote actually going into those positions. Uh, what's your take on that? What's your stance and kind of, how do you work through those things? I was like, I knew this was going to be a question. So I thought about it. I think, (laughs) yeah. Am I, am I that predictable? No, I think because I think these are big, <laughs> big topics that people want yeah. to clarify and they want to yeah. hear about people's take on it. And I think like if you were to use Joel Seedman, that's like one end of the spectrum, like it has to be yeah. very perfect. This is optimal. And then knees over toes guys, for example, like in terms of knee stuff on the other right. end of the spectrum, um, you can plot people on that spectrum. But I think it's a spectrum because someone who can tolerate deep knee flexion, there is a portion of it that is bio. Do they have um, a history of knee injuries? Do they have a history of um, like, do they have a synovial cyst, like a Baker cyst in the knee? They're probably going to have more sensitization towards deep knee flexion. So they wouldn't fall on this end of the spectrum, right? So that's the bio portion. Um, and then the psychosocial portion kind of comes into that Seedman idea of like, 
optimal is the only thing that you could train, but life isn't optimal. You know, like we, mm. just because he's using a bio approach to justify his 90 degree knee flexion, um, because it's, it follows the curve of muscle contraction. Like it's in that plateau phase. That's mm-hmm. the most force output, but it doesn't mean that the joint structures can't tolerate it. So, right. you know what I mean? But now he's, he's overwhelmingly creating words that would create fear of past 90 degrees. And you're just like, Oh, I don't know. But <clears throat> honestly, I think you should be able I'm like, can you tolerate it? Cool. And then go for it. Like, I have no problem with that. I'm a weightlifter. We need their knees past our toes. We need knee valgus. It's part of the process. It's optimal, but that depends on the shape of their pelvis. Like, does their hips even allow knee valgus? Do they have enough? Are they, do they have an adequate amount of internal rotation to allow that so that the knee doesn't have to eat up most of the force and then get more sensitized? Mm. Right. Um, so, sorry, what, one moment. So what I think what you just said there was that in a way valgus might actually be a strategy to decrease load on the knee. Is that what you just said? It can be. Yeah, absolutely. Because if they can, if the hip allows internal rotation, that just means that the knees, uh, cause the knees a conduit of ground reactive forces, right. To like mm. ideally absorb some of it and then and then amortize it to the hip where there's majority of the large musculature of the lower leg of the leg. Um, but if the hip allows internal rotation and then it creates a stretch, um, component and then pulls like some of those glute muscles into a longer stretch. Now mm. they can actually react better because muscles in its shortened range can't produce as much force and muscles in their extremely lengthened range can't produce as much force. But if they contract at the medium phase, like that plateau phase that Joel Seidman loves to talk about, and then right. stretch into it, that's what eccentric loading is. And that's actually the strongest amount of force. So if mm-hmm. you were in a position where you caught it neutral, but then fell into valgus, that's just eccentric contraction. But the joint at the hip allows that. So that means you're, you're technically still keeping most of the force at the hip and the musculature at the hip but that's only because the joint allows it or um, you have the tolerance to do that. But that, again, mm-hmm. that's very dependent on the person and you have to work with them. That's why you're like, Hey, can we try doing a squat like this? Or I have so many patients that come in. I'm like, how do you want me to squat? I'm like, just squat. I just need to see what you think a squat is, what you think you need from your sport is. And like some people who have no business doing the Kelly Starrett perfect torque, 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 squat um right. they shouldn't be doing that and they're like why do my knees hurt so bad it's like your hips don't allow that range of motion like because yeah. your hips look very different than someone else's like you need a little bit of toe out and a little bit wider because just that's the shape of your pelvis we can't change bone so yeah it's just dependent on the person i love that and it makes me think back to a really famous uh physiotherapist called shakira who said that our hips don't lie <laughs> and, uh, so we should listen to that, you know, and it was interesting, you know, joking aside, there was this guy that I worked with a few years ago and, um, he, had, let, let's say it was his right hip. And for him, he kind of, you mentioned the Kelly Starrett, like, you know, feet straight knees straight, 
creating like, you know, like that, like kind of the external rotation, torquey situation on the ground, et cetera. And he was like, left side feels great. Right side feels horrible. And, um, and so one of the questions that we asked him within the context of uh, the work that we were doing was, um, what would feel better? And he was like, I just really want to take my right foot and just angle it out a bit. And I was like, sweet, let's try that. And, um, and it was remarkable the amount of relief that it gave him in like in an instant, it instantly significantly alleviated how his right hip felt. But then the question that I had for myself was, you know, is this potentially in the long run going to be damaging? Do you, do you know what I mean by that? Like, you know, yeah. I find we, in our industry, we have this obsession with symmetry. And so anytime that I deviate from that myself, I can't help but think like, fuck, am I, maybe we're making them feel better right now in the moment, but is this actually going to hurt them like six months from now, a year from now or whatever? Like, what are your stance? What's your stance on that? Well, the beautiful thing is, I think actually Greg Lehman said this stat, the best lifters don't squat the same every single rep. They have movement variability. That's what keeps them able to train over and over again, over and over again, is generally there's a movement that is, is beneficial. But um, what allows them to get training reps in is because they have variability to tolerate a large amount of it so they can just pepper it in. So mm. if for one day, one of your training days, you're like, ah, oh, it really hurts if I squat like this, but it, it's fine if I do that then fucking do that. Like, that's right. fine. You're getting the num- you're getting the weight in, you're respecting your body. You're not forcing it. I'm okay with that. I don't think it's going to damage it in the long run because I think the human body is very adaptable and resilient. And those thoughts probably come from what we were taught that like, wait, no, this is, they're losing torque here. They're doing this. And it's like, that's our preconceived biases that come from, I would think an unevolving thought process. And now you're Mm. able to be like, no, you can squat differently. You can do this. And, um, you shouldn't squat the exact same all the time because then, then you're just using, obviously there's like millions of permutations of human movement that happen. Um, but you need to kind of let that area desensitized by resting it and then giving Mm -hmm. it like changing your hip angle a little bit. And then now you're using a different permutation of movement for a squat, but the movement's the same, essentially it's just toes out versus or heels in whatever the case may be. That just allows more movement variability. So you're not always using the same thing over and over and over and over again. Right. Because that's where it gets sensitive. It's just overuse, right? Too much of anything. Right. Exactly that. Too much. Yeah. Man, I, I could talk to you for hours. And so, uh, but I want to respect your time. And so I've got one final question for you, or actually two. Yeah. Maybe three. It. Maybe three. We'll see. But we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll aim, we'll aim, we'll aim for two. Um, which is, you know, from your from your stance as a clinician who also does training in terms of like guiding people through various movement practices and also being so like a clinician who's actively involved in athletics, what, what would be a message that you would like to share with the fitness community? You know, like, like the community of trainers who don't have the same background as you, you know, um, that haven't gone through 80 years of Cairo school and stuff like that. Uh, uh, what would be 
a message that you would really like to share specifically with that community as it relates to pain and uh, optimizing human function and those types of things? I always say this to our clinicians, uh, leave room for maybe. Um, if If you think you've figured it out already, you've lost. Like it's just, that's not the case. Someone's gonna prove you wrong later now their own so if you leave room for maybe um you really open up the process because like there are patients that are very much just biomechanical like you could they're like yep just move your foot out solves everything that's biomechanical that's not psychosocial there's nothing there that's just like you just move their hip out they could tolerate it now um but then like leave room for maybe we're like okay well maybe this just isn't this we like we need to keep looking for more answers or um but although that's like a two-ended question because like when you hear horses don't look for zebras kind of thing too like don't don't look for some wild stuff just because it because of maybe <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah you know what I mean? like leave room for maybe don't like always like it can't be it's like a very I just gotta add that caveat yeah but look, that's funny. When you hear horses, don't look for zebras. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's like a big, problem. I love that. Yeah. But I think that's the first thing. Cause, um, I, uh, some coaches from their mentors, they learned a very specific split squat. You should do it this way all the time. I'm like, well, yeah. why can't you do it a different way? Cause someone's going to prove you wrong. Like someone won't be able to tolerate that. Are you just going to tell them that you're not their coach? Like, you know, that just seems silly too. Yeah. <clears throat> and cool. then, yeah. I like that. Leave room for maybe it's very, very similar to, uh, very interesting, similar to one of the first pieces of advice that I got from one of my mentors, which was if you're uncomfortable with ambiguity, you're in the wrong profession. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, uh, I, I would, who was it? I think it was my first mentor, Peter Chiasson, who was based out of Toronto. And he was like the biggest guy I'd ever seen at the time. And he blew my mind with a whole bunch of science. And then he dropped that. And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, you're like, Hey, this is information, but like, I might, I still might not know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? I think that's important to be like, everything totally. uh, I've ever learned is not for me. It's definitely from like my mentors, my like reading, uh, yeah. like, it's always, I just like to look for smarter people than me to give better answers. Cause I'm always like, I don't know, maybe <laughs> well, brother. I mean, that's why you're here on this show, man. It's because you're that guy to me. So I appreciate you donating your time. Um, where can people, uh, learn more about you, uh, follow you on your Olympic weightlifting slash powerlifting journey, et cetera. Um, you can follow me on Instagram. It's coach RSA. And uh, if you're in Calgary, uh, we have a clinic in uh, um, Seton and the Calgary Beltline. So um, feel free to drop by or shoot me a message. Cool. Amazing. I'll, uh, I'll make sure that I link uh, your in, your IG handle in the show notes, um, as well as a link to the website as well. Thank Final you. question for you before we wrap <coughs> is really simple, open-ended. Is there anything that I forgot to ask that you think I should have asked? Oh man, no, I don't think so at all. Cause there's, it's a massive topic. We could talk for a weekend, like a week. You can go on a trip and talk about this. So that was awesome. Cool. 
Amazing. Well, Ray, thank you so much. Honestly, it's been, it's been so fun, uh, uh, vibing with you on this. I think mutually this topic that we're mutually interested in. And, uh, I know you've got a, diff- a whole bunch of different pokers in the fire and you're a busy guy. So once again, thanks for donating your time. Um, I really appreciate, uh, appreciative. Thanks for having me. I, I, this is fun. So anytime reach out. Shout out to Dr. Augustin for today's episode. To learn more about him and his shared clinic, Dynamic YYC, make sure you check out the show notes below. Keep your eyes peeled for our next episode where we welcome Greg Lehman, a physiotherapist and authority on the topics of pain and injury rehabilitation. 